Okay, let's uh, officially begin. Welcome to everyone. Thank you for being here. You got a lot of good choices at this hour, and so I'm grateful that you've chosen this for for today. Um, as I said, the uh, handout is available on my website, johnmarkhicks.com. And if you're listening through recording, uh, you may have to search for it. Uh, but it's um, johnmarkhicks.com, and it will be the handout called the Husband of One Wife, Enough Said, or something like that, whatever. Uh, look, Just do search Husband of One Wife, you'll find it, if you're listening five years from now or whatever. Um, but you might want to go to that and follow along, although it hopefully it won't be necessary, but it would be helpful, I imagine. But thank you for being here. And the topic of husband of one wife has a long and controversial history. You would think that that text would be clear. But I imagine in most of your congregations, you haven't experienced much clarity with that. I mean, some of the discussions that we have are, well, can an unmarried person, can a person who has no children, can a person who's remarried, widowed, divorced, if, if your wife dies, can you stay an elder, right? Because it says you have to be a husband of one wife. Uh, if you have children, how, how many children do you have to have? Um, how well behaved do they have to be, all right? And can they misbehave after they leave the house, you know? Um, or do they have to behave their whole life for you to be the husband of one wife with believing? And do they have to really, do they have to believe? You have to wait to be an elder till your kids get baptized, you know, that kind of thing, right? I mean, so this has not been all that clear. But the topic comes from a series of um, engagements that I've had with different congregations who are considering appointing female elders. And um, I was privy to a list of uh, responses from the congregation from one of these uh, places. And there was just this one comment on, you know, what do you think about appointing female elders? And, and the comment said, husband of one wife, nothing more needs to be said. Now, that's it. That settled it. And, you know, I understand that. I can really appreciate where that comes from and, and what's going on with that. Because I, I, I have that same experience myself. That that should settle it, right? That should be it. And so what I want to do in these two sessions is to try to grab hold of, okay, what, what is this husband of one wife thing? What, what is that about? And then tomorrow we'll focus on, does that exclude women? So today we're more interested in, okay, what does that mean? And then tomorrow we'll be more interested in, okay, how inclusive is that? But I do want to set this up um, before we enter into the fray here. Because it is often a matter of hermeneutics, how we come to this text, what we expect this text to do. And we bring expectations. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going to frame this as you're looking at the outline and frame it with kind of four hermeneutical approaches. These are not the only ones. 
And you might even say there's a lot of overlap between some of them. So it's not like, okay, these are four silos, right? No, there's a continuum here. But there is a, a, a way of approaching 1 Timothy 3 and saying this is Paul's cultural embeddedness. He's swimming in his culture. He's breathing the air of his culture. And he just only expects men to have this role, right? That he, he's living in a patriarchal culture. And that's how he's formed and that's how he's shaped. And so he's just being who he is excluding women. And I can understand, or, or you come to 1 Timothy and say, well, Paul didn't write this, so it doesn't really matter. You know, so we can just dismiss it. So to say he's culturally embedded or culturally enmeshed is a way of saying, Paul just is wrong. Or he could be wrong. Right? And so there's a sort of, um, I wouldn't want to say dismissal, uh, because that's not a conclusion one comes to just out of, you know, uh, kind of a, a reaction. It's rather a studied conclusion on the part of some people that Paul is just too culturally embedded to see beyond. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's the way to go with this. I, I don't think Paul is all that culturally enmeshed. But I'm not going to try to argue that case here. I'm just going to say, okay, that's one way of going at it. I don't think that's the, the, the right way to go at it myself. Or you can say that uh, another hermeneutical method is say cultural accommodation. And I mean accommodation here in a positive sense, not a negative sense. Paul is accommodative. That is, his main goal is to get a hearing for the gospel. He wants the gospel to be heard. He doesn't want to to have a threatening community, a community that threatens the social order. And the classic example of this would be slavery, how Paul deals with slavery. Now, we could say Paul's wrong in the way he deals with slavery, but I don't, I don't think so. I think more when Paul deals with slavery, he's, he's accommodative in the sense that he wants to adorn the gospel. He wants the gospel to get a hearing. He's not interested in a social revolution. It's not in the imperial context. It's not going to happen anyway. And so he is trying to... Um, offer a vision of how to live in this culture and this society in a way that gets the gospel a hearing and that the gospel is non, non-threatening or the community is non-threatening. <clears throat> and, I, and I think that that has some merit to it. I think there's some merit to that view. It, I think that's probably what we, how we should approach how Paul deals with slavery. And it's possible that that's how we should approach how Paul deals with um, elders. That he's looking for something, or he's, he's practicing a, a path that um, is accommodative to the culture in which he lives. We got, we got seats down here at the front. You want to come down? Come on down. Or seats available. Um, the third is more theological inclusivism. That is a new creation theology. That Paul actually operates with a new creation theology. And that this new creation theology is pulling us into the future. Paul is eschatologically pulling us into the future, into a future that maybe is represented by Galatians 3.28, for example. The new, and the, that new creation is everything, Paul says in Galatians 6. And that that's the rule by which he lives. And so he's drawing us into that future. 
but drawing us into that future in ways that are not threatening to um, the hearing that the gospel might have, but nevertheless drawing us into it. So it's kind of a theological interpretation. Then the fourth approach is what I call a blueprint exclusivism. And that is where, okay, we got these list of qualifications. We have to check them off. Uh, we have to make sure we're, we, we get them precisely obeyed. And we can't let anybody be an elder who doesn't have exactly this. Right? And so we look at the qualifications, quote unquote, of elders as a uh, blueprint that we must reproduce or a blueprint that we must reduplicate, right? I am going to approach this generally with that third one, the theological inclusivism, the new creation theology. I think the accommodative has a lot to offer, and I don't think those two are mutually exclusive. I think they can work together, uh, but that's kind of where I'm coming from. So that's, uh, I wanted to give you a sense of um, uh, how I'm generally approaching this. So let me give you a sense also of how I'm generally approaching male-female in the story of God. And this, um, I have like, I don't remember how many there are, like seven statements there. But basically, I'm just going to tell you a story as how I think this flows in the biblical story that male and female are created differentiated there's a difference between male and female they are differentiated um, and I think that that needs to be part of how we think about this but they're also <laughs> shared it's a shared identity in the image of God and it's a shared vocation God said to them and God blessed them right so there is uh, differentiation, male and female, but there's also a shared reality. And that differentiation contributes to the whole, right? So the point would be not that, um, well, I'll, I'll get to that at the end here. Let me just, just affirm the differentiation and affirm the shared, the mutuality. Now that gets disrupted by the fall, seems to me. That what we have for the first time with this word rule in Genesis 3.16, that that is the introduction of a rule, of a arche, right? A ruling, a man ruling, right? A, a patriarchy, you might say. And we recognize in Genesis 3.16 that that is um, a description of what's going to happen, part of the consequences of, of the moral disorder that's happening uh, in the world at that point. So I think the fall represents a, um, a moment in which sin introduces disorder, not just in male-female relationships, but disorder in relationships with creation, disorder in relationships with other people, um, but it introduces the disorder. Now, in that disorder... God calls Israel and calls Israel in a way that reflects near ancient Near Eastern culture. But, if, for example, the patrilineal uh, idea that the inheritance is through the males, right? The men 
receive the inheritance. The women don't. Uh, but men receive the inheritance. Um, but that process or that way of uh, operating is assumed in the biblical text as a part of cultural context of the world. But it is also punctuated with, shall we say, holes. With a Deborah, or a Miriam, or a Hoda, or a Esther, or an Anna. That, that women are prophets. In fact, the first of the first five <clears throat> prophets, two are women, Miriam and Deborah. It uh, seems to me Deborah needs to get a lot more attention here in terms of her role in uh, society, as well as in uh, Israel as a judge and a prophet to whom people listen, to whom people submit to her judgments. And it seems to me that, you know, we think about creation as setting up a, a kind of an embedded rule of, hum, of men that what we have in Deborah is God's violation of his own rule. So I think what we have in the story of Israel is we have a... Um, a playing out of the story of God on the map of patriarchy, but God punctuates it, punctures holes in it, and says, I'm moving, I'm drawing you to something else, I'm drawing you beyond this. Which I think brings us to, to Pentecost, and we can talk about Jesus, but I'm, I'm trying to be very brief with this. So. But Pentecost, it seems to me, is, a, is the introduction of new creation. It is the pouring out of new creation. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's ascended to the right hand. He's enthroned. And now pours out the Spirit. And in pouring out the Spirit, new creation is being poured out. That future that God is drawing us into, that future that redeems the past, that redeems uh, the woundedness and the disorder and creates order out of disorder, um, that's the presence of the Spirit. And it seems to me the presence of the Spirit is not only about the presence of God, it's also about the transforming work of God in our hearts and communities. And it's also about the gifting of God. And it is that gifting to which I would want to point that we are not, um, we're not submitting to gender, we're submitting to gifting. We submit to gifting. And we do that in a mutual way. When one is gifted, we submit to that gifting. We affirm that gifting. We use that gifting for the common good. So what I want to, uh, if that's the case, you know, that's, that's very brief, very general. I understand a lot of questions you could, we could raise about all of that. And we'd want to say, well, what about this or what about that? Sure, I get that. You know? And I, I deal with a lot of that in my book called uh, Women Serving God. But I wanted to give you a framework where I'm coming from in terms of uh, the basic orientation. So I'm coming at this uh, through a theological interpretation lens rooted primarily in new creation, what new creation is drawing us into, what God is calling us into. Um, and I'm coming at it through the giftedness. Right? And here's what I'd want to say, that the differentiation of male and female, which I want to affirm, and I want to affirm differences. And in affirming differences, that doesn't mean I'm affirming specific roles. What I'm affirming is that God wants to bring all those differences to the same table. 
so that in a community of faith, the differences contribute to the common good. And that the gifting, you know, the gifting of mercy to one person, a female, and the gifting of mercy to another person, a male, they're still going to bring different dimensions of that to the table. Different experiences to the table. And we need both. We need both in terms of the gift of mercy. We need both in terms of the gift of benevolence. We need both in terms of the gift of prophecy. We need both in terms of the gift of administration or leadership. And we need both in terms of the gifting of teaching. And we need both, it seems to me, in the terms of the gifting of pastor. Because they do, we do bring different things to the table. And that's a good thing. Not something to deny, but something to embrace and enjoy and to recognize. So, gifting is what we submit to, right? it seems to me. Now, I know there's a lot of what about this or that kind of thing hidden in there. But let me get to the, get to the text that we want to talk about. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. The husband of one wife. Now, if you're following the outline, you notice that I'm going to preface the discussion of that phrase with some questions. Questions about, uh, okay, what sort of context is here? And then questions about um, what are some of the criteria that we use to even understand this phrase? How do we understand that? So, first of all, the context. What sort of list is this? Is it a, a list, prefab list? You know? Is it the list that Paul would give to Barnabas <laughs> as well as Timothy? Uh, is it the list that has already been settled like at the Jerusalem Council or something? Well, these are the, this is the list here that everybody's got to go by. In other words, is this a, um, a list that exists independent of the letter itself? Now, if, if that's the case, then it's kind of strange that Paul says, now here's what I, I want to tell you about this, Timothy. Now, he's writing to Timothy, right? The, the singular you is used most often in the letter. Like when he gets to 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, he says, I'm writing to you. Singular. So he's talking to Timothy. Now, Timothy's been the mentee of Paul, right? For years. Do you imagine that Timothy had no idea what sort of person he should select as an elder? That, that maybe Timothy said to Paul, you know, what sort of person are we looking for, Paul? I'm just not sure about this. <coughs> no, no, Timothy's not like that, right? So why is Paul wanting to give him this sort of list? It seems to me it's directly related in some way with the situation or the problem that's going on in Timothy, which we'll talk more about uh, tomorrow. So, it's not a standardized list that is passed around to all the churches, right? Because Timothy, we already know about that one. This is a list that addresses the situation, the context, right? It's not been a kind of a blueprint list. It's an ad hoc list. It's a list oriented to the occasion. He's writing to Timothy. Remember. Timothy should already know this stuff. 
Right? So it already had that list. And we know from Titus that it's not the same list. Right? It's similar. has a lot of overlap, for sure. But it's not the same one. If it was a standardized list, he would have just said, well, Titus, let me give you the one I gave to Timothy. You know? If it was kind of a standardized sort of thing. So I take this as kind of an ad hoc occasional list. Now, that doesn't make it unimportant. It's still important. It's important for what Timothy's doing in his context, that he needs these kind of people in those kind of leadership roles. Right? The second question I want to raise, well, you know, what, what, is, um, what is the function of this list? What kind of list is it? And I would suggest that it's a virtue list. That the nature of what he's describing here is not so much status list as virtue list. That is, these are the sort of people that we want leading the church. The sort of people. We want people who are reputable. We want people who are gentle, not violent. We want people who know how to handle people, manage people in a healthy way, right? We want leaders of that sort. These are the sort of people that we want. And so I think it's important to have that sense that this is a virtue list. Then I would also want to know um, what's the function of this list? What's its function? And I think we get a really good clue. Because Paul begins in verse 2 with, there, or he begins with, uh, it is necessary, or must. It is necessary. And then he gets at the end of the list in, in verse 7 and says, and this is necessary. He uses the word necessary at the begin and the end. Right? We have a couple of seats down front here. Several in this row, and, and a couple in the middle. So, just go ahead and plow in, right? <laughs> so the two necessaries are kind of like bookends, and the topic of those necessaries, or the immediate reference of those necessaries, I think are really significant because he says it is necessary to be above reproach. And then he says it is necessary to have a good reputation among outsiders. So he begins with above reproach and then good reputation with outsiders. In other words, we want a leader who is going to be comfortable in some sense, is going to fit in in some sense with the culture. Now, don't hear me wrong about that. I don't mean going to fit in with the culture in terms of you know, some immorality. No. But someone who has a good reputation in the community, who's without reproach, and who has a reputation with the outsiders. We need someone who's going to lead this congregation or lead this church without the baggage of a bad rep in the community. Right? 
And that was true across Greco-Roman culture, that in Greco-Roman culture, it was very important to have people leading communities or leading associations who were respected in the community. And so Paul's concern is about that. I want you to be, uh, you know, find people who are respected in the community. Now, you have to remember Ephesus. We had communal problems in Ephesus before. <laughs> yeah, Acts 19. I mean, people got dragged into the temple of Diana, right? Artemis. So the, um, the understanding that, hey, we want a community that is non-threatening in the sense that they're going to disrespect us, they're going to undermine us, they're going to try to get rid of us, they're going to beat up on us. It may happen anyway, but some things we don't have any control over. But we can do this. So I think that that's part of what's going on here. The function of the list is a virtue list to um, shape, to give the, to give the sense of the type of person, the sort of person who can lead this community and lead it in a way and lead it by people who have a good reputation in the community. In other words, we don't want anything happening here that is going to set off uh, fireworks. Right? We have enough fireworks with the Temple of Artemis, right? that kind of thing. So, with that kind of perspective, I come to this other question. Well, how do we decide what this word, what this phrase means? Actually, a three-word phrase, right? How do we decide what this phrase means? <clears throat> Well, um, one of the ways we want to try to do that is, does it fit with the function of the list? How does it fit into the function? How does it fit in as a virtue list? If this is a virtue list, how does it, how does it fit in as a virtue list? Is it a merely a status idea? You have, to, you have to be married. That's status. you got to be a married person. That's status. Or is this phrase more of a virtue rather than a status? I don't think anybody would want to say it's mere status, right? Oh, you're married? Okay, you can be an elder. <laughs> now, you know, we said, no, what kind of marriage you got? What kind of life do you have with your spouse? We want to know what sort of marriage you have. Not just that you're married, right? So does it, how does our understanding of this phrase fit into the virtue list? Then I want to know also, does this, however I interpret 1 Timothy 3.2, um, uh, is it consistent with how I read 1 Timothy, what is it, 5.9, where the widow must be uh, a one-man woman, right? One-man woman, which is the converse of, what is it, inverse, which one is, I don't know. I don't know. You can look it up, Google um, it's the other way around. <laughs> it's the other way around, right? Of the uh, language that Paul uses. Paul uses the language in 1 Timothy 3 2 of the one woman man, and then the widow must be a one man woman. Right? So, whatever we say 1 Timothy 3 2 means, it has to be kind of consistent with how we might imagine the meaning of 1 Timothy 5 9. Then the other thing I think is important is, and this one's a little more iffy, because if you don't think Paul wrote 1 Timothy, then this one's not going to fit so easily. 
But even those who think Paul didn't write 1 Timothy believe that it was some sort of Pauline group that wrote it, right? That they were the disciples of Paul. But whatever that, however you might turn out on that one, um, I still want to know, is this consistent with Pauline theology? Is the meaning of this word, the meaning of this phrase, do we take it in a consistently Pauline way? And I think that gets pretty important here in just a moment. Now, all of that's to set up what in the world does this phrase mean? What is it talking about? Right? And tomorrow we will get to uh, whether it includes or excludes women. That's tomorrow's topic. Today, I just want to know, even if we're just talking about men, what does this mean? What does this phrase do? How does it function in this virtue list? Uh, for those of you who came in a little late or later, uh, you see my website, johnmarkhicks.com. The handout is on that website. If you type in this into your Google page or whatever, um, the front page of the website will be this, will be the handout all right, for what I'm talking about. And I hope it's, I'm not looking at my handout, so I'm, I'm assuming we're tracking with it, right? <laughs> Pretty much. Um, then we're down, down to the last part of that handout. A husband of one wife is the traditional, tra- I mean, Tyndale did that, right? Tyndale back in the 15th, 16th century. And translations kind of followed that. Nobody disrupted that much. There's a few exceptions. But uh, then newer translations began to nuance it a bit. They began to say the husband of but one wife. Right? The NIV of 1984, the husband of but one wife. Um, which makes it sound more like it's against polygamy or something like that. Then uh, the, other tr- the new RSV says married only once. In other words, only one wife means you only married once. If you're widowed, you can't be an elder anymore. Or, and, you can't, and if you're a widower, you can't become an elder even if you remarry. Or if you're divorced and remarry, you can't be an elder. I mean, you've heard arguments about all that, right? Husband of one wife means you've only, been, you've only had one wife your whole life, and you still have her, right? Because you know, if you're widowed, then you've got to scoot out of the eldership. And that's how some people have understood this. But we've argued about it. I don't think it's all that clear if you understand it as a husband of one wife. If that's the phrase, then is that just about status? Or is that about virtue? Is that about how many? Is that about, can you be a digamist? That is, can you have two, three wives, but not at the same time? Right? And our congregations can split over this. I've, I've been a part of discussions in congregations where we have a, a widower who remarried and a perfect elder. I mean, the character of this man was just wonderful. Shepherd already in his life and what he was doing. And yet the congregation rejected him because it was his second wife. Just one wife. Husband of one wife. Yeah. That's... That's how it would be understood. But then the third translation that's at the bottom of the handout is faithful to spouse or faithful to wife. It's about faithfulness. It's a virtue. It's not not a quality. It's a virtue, right? Uh, It's not distributed in that sense. 
Um, so let's talk about each of those and uh, try to come to some uh, conclusion. And again, translations are going to differ. Scholars are going to differ. So I don't have a magic bullet here you know, that says this is the way it is or else. You know, there's no magic bullet here. Um, we're just going to walk through the possibilities and I'll offer my opinion. Uh, but for every opinion I offer, there are other people who have different opinions. Right? So it's not like I'm going to set down the rule here. Right? So let's talk about, first of all, that first translation, the husband of one wife. And I'm going to look at my notes because I have some things I'd like to quote here in a moment. Oop, too far. Now, I think when you translate it, the husband of one wife, you get kind of the common sense thing. Okay, he, this person, this is a man, must be married, um, and is only married to one person, right? And we would presume also, because of the context, that it's also a virtue element here, that, that it's a good marriage, and that it's a healthy marriage, right? So I think when you have husband or one wife, it kind of assumes that. So it would, when you translate it that way, that's typically how we've, in Churches of Christ at least, have read that text, right? We are the weird ones. Just being honest, we're the outliers on this. Because no one in the early church read this as excluding single people. You can't find one patristic author who ever excluded singles from this office. In fact, you have the exact, instead of a, a married understanding, you have the exact opposite trend that ultimately you can't be married. Right? I mean, that's Roman Catholicism today, right? I mean, and, so, and it goes back deep into the third, fourth century that you shouldn't be married. You're married to Christ. If you're a priest, if you're a bishop, you're married to Christ. So you can't be married to a woman or a, a, a human being. You're married to Jesus. Uh, so the idea that singles are excluded is a rather unique understanding in our history and in the history of the church. It, it went something like this. Married people were not excluded in the early centuries. In fact, we have very explicit data about that, that there were married priests and there were married bishops. And, and even in the Greek Orthodox Church, you still have married priests, right? <clears throat> even though bishops are now usually monks uh, in the Greek Orthodox Church and not married. Um, but in the West, it developed into, all right, uh, and this, was, this part was also in the East a little bit, that this phrase means um, that you are a virtuous person who doesn't have sex. Now, you're going to ask me how they got that. I'm, it's a very complicated story. But the way it was understood in, in the patristic period, the way it grew into an understanding, is that... Um, even if you're married, you don't have sex. 
continence, right? Because you're married to Christ. And if you have sex with your wife, you, you're, you're committing uh, an impurity, right? But it was, and so that kind of led to the reality that most priests are going to be uh, single, and ultimately that became the rule, right? Because I imagine if you're married, you have a spouse, a human spouse, that no sexual is pretty difficult, I would imagine, uh, even for the singles, right? I said, well, why are we so strange on this one? I mean, I read one article that said, nobody believes that singles are excluded by this text. And I just chuckled. (laughs) (laughs) You don't know everything, do you? (laughs) I I know some people who think it that way, you know. Um, But it's pretty true in, in the history of the church. Nobody ever did, right? Now, in Churches of Christ, we haven't always agreed on this one. Yeah. The, uh, the churches were losing properties when the priest's children were becoming uh, pagans. So that's why they started the set up. Um, that can be part of it. The, the, you know, no sex. Uh, therefore, you know, because, the, because we don't want children who are going to go away from the faith. But I think it's more deeper than that. I think it's deeper than it's an ascetic theology. That, that the priest needs to be focused on the spirituality and not on the body and, you know, that sort of thing. But let me get to Churches of Christ here. And this is where I want to read a couple of quotes. Robert Milligan, you know, wrote The Scheme of Redemption. I read that at Fried Hardeman as part of my theology, right? But he has this little thing in there when he gets the organization of the church when he says singles are not excluded. And his reason is, well, then Jesus couldn't be the shepherd. Paul couldn't have been called. Is, do we really want to say Paul could not be an elder of a church he planted? <laughs> or that Jesus couldn't be the shepherd of a church? With that character, with that virtue, we're going to exclude Jesus? We're going to exclude Paul? And that's, Milligan says that. David Lipscomb says that. <laughs> David Lipscomb, you know, you, you got conservative credentials here, right, with David Lipscomb. Um, He says, uh, we believe an unmarried or childless man, if otherwise qualified, may be a bishop or deacon. J.C. McQuitty, who was the publisher of the Gospel Advocate, you know, the bulwark of conservatism in the South, right? J.C. McQuitty, in 1922, had four or five articles arguing this case that singles could be elders. In the 1950s, we were still debating it. Now, that sounds almost unimaginable. But in the 1950s, and the wing that was debating it was the non-institutional wing. They were debating whether singles could be elders. And there were a couple of, and it's not just the non-institutional, by the way, but, but like Henry Winkler, a little, little pamphlet, uh, which he argued that um, um, uh, Doubtit, who is, uh, was a, a contributor, a heavy contributor to the Gospel Guardian, even the co-editor of the Gospel Guardian, agreed that singles could be elders. So when, when you agree singles can be elders, what does that do to husband of one wife? Yeah. He's not the husband of one wife. How can He's single. How can, how can he... 
Maybe we're not understanding what the husband of one wife really is about. Right? I agree. But Paul, in English it sounds that way, but is that really what the Greek idiom means? Or what it's focused on? Right? So, um, you know, another way of going at this is to say, like 1 Corinthians 7, let each man have his own wife. It's an imperative. He commands it. Let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. This is the way it's supposed to be. And then he says, and if you're unmarried, stay that way. <laughs> right? In 1 Corinthians 7. So it's, it's not like 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2, let each man have his own wife, is kind of a command, a timeless command that everybody has to come up with, right? It's rather... You know, to avoid immorality, if you have that burning, let each man have his own wife and each woman have his own man. And you have each other mutually. The only time Paul uses the word authority to describe male-female relationships, the only time he uses exousia, authority, to describe male-female relationships is chapter 7, verse 4 of 1 Corinthians. You know what he says? The wife has authority over her husband's body. And the husband has authority over the wife's body. It's a mutual authority. Only time Paul ever uses that word in relation to male-female. I think that's pretty significant. But that's another story. I I need to get here because we're running out of time. So if if we say, okay, it's not about singles necessarily... Singles can be elders. By the way, you know, how do we get to where that debate got settled, basically? Because of a little book by J.W. McGarvey called The Eldership. He wrote a series of articles in the, 19, in the 1870s, published in the Apostolic Guide, as he was kind of pushing back against the one-pastor model that was developing. Uh, and part of that book, he made a two-paragraph argument about you have to be married and not, not single. And that, and that book became the standard book among churches of Christ for how to do elders. That's where we got it. I mean, it's not the only place, of course, but that had the major influence. Right? So what about another translation? <coughs> Married only once, which is the new RSV. And this is based upon the idea that what Paul is saying is analogous to a virtue that was common in the Greco-Roman world. Women were regarded with great honor who only married once. In Latin, they were called univera. Univera. There was a Greek phrase for it, too. Um, what is it? Monoandron, I think it is. So there's a Greek phrase and there's a Latin phrase for this status of you're married only once, you buried your husband, you're not going to get married again, or... The husband buried you and said she was a one-man woman. You know, she was a univera. So some think that this Greek phrase that we have here is equivalent to that. And I don't think so. Because if you wanted to use that title, that status, why don't you just use the Greek phrase that's used for it? Instead of inventing a different one. Because we can't find this phrase anywhere else in Greek literature. The one man, woman, 
or one woman man? We can't find that phrase anywhere else in Greek literature. I know BDAG, the, the great, the standard Greek lexicon, uh, says it's found on inscriptions to mean married only once. I looked up every one of their references. No! <laughs> I mean, that phrase is not, they're talking about Nivera. They think it's an analogy. But the, great, the actual phrase that Paul uses is not found on inscriptions anywhere that I know of. And I've asked a lot of different people. And I've tried to do my own work. Um, this is a unique phrase. So I don't think it means married only once. Because if you look at the widow, the, the widow is said, well, she was a one woman, she was a one man woman. But widows are also said to counseled to be, to remarry, right? You, to be enrolled, you have to be a one man woman and you have to be 60, which I don't probably, probably don't use that rule anymore, right? We don't use the rule of 60 anymore. Uh, but we, 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 we do have this rule there that Paul says. They wash the feet and you know, different things. And if Paul says to a younger widow, you should remarry, which is what he does in 1 Timothy, you should remarry, he cuts her out of the enrollment if it only means married once. So Paul is saying, yes, remarried, I know that cuts you out of enrollment, whatever that is, you know. If it means married only once, then when you remarry, when you're married a second time and your second husband dies, church can't help you. Because you've, you've been married more than once. I don't think that's what that phrase means. I don't think it's about polygamy either. It might have some implications for polygamy. But polygamy wasn't all that common in the Greco-Roman world. It was there in spots. But it wasn't all that common. And when Paul says to the widow, you need to be a one-man woman, I don't think he's prohibiting polygamy. Because it would be... And it would be uh, um, oh, what's the word? Polyandry. Um, polyandry. Polyandry. There's no polyandry in the, in the Greco-Roman world. right? So, that can't be what it means. It can't mean for the widow that she, had to, she could never get married again. It can't mean for the widow that she can't have two husbands at once because that didn't happen. So what does it mean? And that's when we come to this last one. And we got a few more minutes here. Um... I think it means faithful to the spouse. Faithful to the spouse. The widow, were you faithful to your spouse? By the way, the word widow could be used for single people who never married. That Greek word could apply to virgins. And if that's the case, then how is a, a woman who never married, let's say a woman who never married yet is now over 60 and she is struggling and the church can't enroll her, whatever that might mean. The church can't enroll her because she's never been married. No, that's not the point, right? The point is she's the sort of person who is a one-man woman. And what Paul is looking at here is the sort of person who is a one-woman man. Which is about marital fidelity, not marital status. It's about, this is the sort of person this is faithful to their commitments, faithful in their marriages, faithful, that sort of person. The emphasis is on the one, 
because of the faithfulness. And the genitive quality here, a man of one woman, is about the quality of that relationship, not about the quantity of it. Not about the status, but the virtue. Now, I, I know I went kind of quick on that last one. And, um, and hopefully tomorrow we're going to have some time for questions and comments if you want to come back. And so tomorrow we'll talk about, okay, does this phrase that I think means faithful to spell, which is, by the way, what David Liskin thought it meant. David Liskin says exactly that. He says it means Jewish faithful Bible to spell. Huh? Complete Jewish Bible translates that too. Who says that? Complete Jewish Bible. Okay. Well, I mean, there's, I gave you a footnote that a lot of other people said it, so it's not unique with me or anything. But it's a virtue, not a status. Now, if it's a virtue and not a status, is it also gender exclusive? That's the question for tomorrow. All right? So we'll leave you hanging here. Thank you for being here. Appreciate your, your, your presence.